We uh, continue our series in the Gospel of John today titled, That You May Believe. And as we've been uh, remembering throughout the series, uh, the, the heart of the series, the idea behind this whole thing is that the claims of our faith, the claims of Christianity aren't just idea-based like so many of the other uh, religious or spiritual claims around the world. The claims of Christianity about Jesus are event-based. The, the claims are actually historic in nature. In Christmas and Easter, we have very clearly claims upon history, saying that something happened on the timeline of history rather than just, hey, we like this religious idea because we think it's better than other religious ideas. Right? Christians say, we believe what we do because we think these things actually happened. And the Apostle John wrote his entire gospel uh, and he gave us very clearly the reason for his writing. Here's what he said. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he wrote so that we might believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And he wrote saying that a new kind of life was available in Jesus. So as we're working through this series, we're holding in in mind that the claims are historic in nature and that those claims demand a response from us. So responding to Jesus, how will we respond? Today we look at the last part of chapter 8 where in just a few words Jesus summarizes the entire gospel and gives us a profound invitation, a wonderful promise, and a new identity. Profound invitation, wonderful promise, and a new identity. So let's listen to the scripture. Our reading this morning is from John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, And you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the work of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to to them, 
If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. You do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jennifer. So I'm a graduate of Miami of Ohio in Oxford, Ohio. I was a business major, organizational behavior uh, specifically, and thankful for that. feel like I got a great education in Miami. It was a local state school. I grew up in Ohio, so it was kind of the local option. For some reason, this little state school in Oxford, Ohio, generates deep loyalty uh, with its alumni to, to the point where many Ivy League schools send their advancement departments to Miami to figure out what Miami is doing to raise so much money. It's really that good. I can't explain it, uh, but the year after I graduated, I joined the club and gave some money to my alma mater. And as a thanks, I got this cool print. It's a picture of one of the primary buildings on campus called Upham Hall. And Upham Hall is one of those uh, kind of centerpieces of the campus. Like it's an architectural centerpiece of the campus. And there's an arch, because the building is really, it's huge and really long. And there's a primary sidewalk thoroughfare that goes right through the center of the building. And they built this arch, you know, to make it a centerpiece. And I don't think that you can probably see it. I couldn't zoom in, but there's an inscription on the stone above the arch that says, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. State school, right? Like many universities, Miami was founded as a seminary. It, it's an older school. It was founded in 1809. These days, the school likes to distance itself from the reality that the words of Jesus are inscribed on one of its architectural centerpieces. Um, and it was only in the last two months of my college career when I began to understand the inscription. I had walked through that arch hundreds of times, read that, read that inscription innumerable times, but it was only after I had cried out to God for help and acknowledged my deep need that I began to realize the truth of Jesus and how that truth really does make us free. Our passage today contains a profound invitation, a wonderful promise, and a new identity, the promise of a new identity. So first, the invitation. Let's kind of break down what the scripture actually says. The passage starts by identifying the people to whom Jesus was speaking, to the Jews who had believed in him. Now, if you're at all like me, you think he's talking to his followers, 
to the, to the people who were believing in him right then. Turns out this isn't really the case. It looks like that at, at, at first, but it becomes later in the passage that it's something different. These were folks who evidently had believed at one point, but were either wavering or had completely turned away. If you're more familiar with the Bible, you remember back in chapter 6 when Jesus gave a particularly difficult teaching. Many of the, his, his disciples, his followers, then turned away and said, we just can't, we can't go there with you. Right? We, we can't do that. So he had some people who, who turned away, and this looks like them. So what this really means is the people who had previously followed Jesus, not those who were following him now and continuing as his disciples. These were former disciples, former followers. And what comes next is a, a, a profound truth that comes as an invitation. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you hold to my teaching. When, when you do the homework on this and look at the original language, uh, you see that that Greek word translated hold to is, is the Greek word meno. It means to stay, remain, live, dwell, or abide. And the word in English translated word is the Greek word logos, which means word, spoken or written, often with a focus on the content of the communication. So you can kind of put this together and, and get a range of meaning here. What, what, here's the deal. It's less about holding to Jesus' teaching in the sense of agreeing with it in your head. It, it's less about uh, even agreeing with it and trying to apply little pieces of it to your life, Jesus has a different picture in mind here. He's talking about us making his word our home. He's talking about us choosing to live in the words of Jesus. So this isn't about taking a little Jesus and kind of injecting it into our life so we can have a little better Uh, a more comfortable existence and maybe a little more peace in this life. This is about calling the movers, packing up the truck, and moving to a new place to live, a different residence, a different address. And that new place is life in the words of Jesus, in the word of Jesus. So Jesus is inviting us to live in his word. Now you might be thinking, eh, conceptually I can noodle on that and maybe come up with some good stuff, but what does that mean? What does it actually mean when Jesus says, hey, if you, if you make your residence in my word, I mean, work it out with me, right? I mean, the, the scripture calls us to many things. I mean, certainly obeying Jesus' word is a big part of it, but I think it's more than that. It's certainly not just a religious checklist, like, yep, went to church, yep, served some people in need, yep. You know, it's bigger than that. I mean, what, what do you do at home? We, we eat at home. We sleep. We are our real selves at home. I mean, what would it look like to do all of the things we do at home as if we were living in the home of Christ and, and his word. I, I like the way commentator Frederick, Buechner, uh, Frederick Bruner su- summarizes this. Living in Jesus' word is, in short, a decision to make Jesus' word the major fact in one's week, life, and home. 
making Jesus' word the major fact in one's weak life and home. Jesus uses that same word, meno, uh, live, abide, remain in me, in John 15. Again, if you know uh, that gospel a little bit, that's where Jesus says, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. If you live in me, I will live in you. And, and specifically, uh, he, he's saying, if you live in me, or you can live in me like I live in you. So if, if you're a follower of Christ, now I remember when I was a new believer, I, I asked the question in a Bible study, like how do you sense the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? It was so mysterious to me as a new believer and I didn't really understand that. And I, I believed it, right? Because I'd come to believe that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened. So I'm reading in the, Bible, the Bible in a new way. And scripture says very clearly that when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And Jesus' invitation here is for us to live in him as he lives in us. So if you're a Christian and you've had some sense of the spirit of God within you, of the living presence of God by the Holy Spirit within you, we're invited to live in Jesus in the same way that he lives in us. I mean, this is, this is pretty incredible, right? This is Jesus' invitation to the world. Please come and live with me. And notice, in this passage, he's extending that invitation to people who were hostile to him. So it's a wide-open invitation. Please come and, and live with me. And according to Jesus, this is the one mark of a real disciple. Look at it again. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you take up residence in my word, then you're the real deal. You're actually a disciple, meaning a student, a follower, a learner of Jesus. See, according to Jesus, the one test to determine whether you are a real disciple has to do with whether you're living in his word making Jesus' word the major fact of your week and home and life, right? Real disciples live in the home of Jesus' word. It's refreshing, isn't it? Really, if you think about it, there's no long to-do list of things to impress God, to kind of make the spiritual honor roll or make God's team or whatever. This is, this is the thing. Living in God's word. Jesus invites us to move our lives into his and make our home in his word. This is the profound invitation and, and the invitation comes with a wonderful promise. The next verse. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, when we move into the home of Jesus' word, then we come to know the truth, and that truth has some kind of liberating effect on us, right? Sets us free from something. Now, the promise is for knowledge of the truth and liberation from something holding us down. So, first, the truth part. We have to ask, what truth are we talking about here? What's the deal? I, I, I have a vivid memory of sitting in a seminary class with one of my favorite professors. And we showed up at class that day and he didn't say anything as we were filtering in. And it, it turned out he was going to try to bait us into a debate about the nature of truth, trying to get us to think about what truth is like as, as Christians. So very first words out of his mouth after everybody got seated, he was standing up behind his desk just kind of smiling. He said, so, is there such thing as absolute truth? 
Now again, we, we knew him, this wasn't a confrontational thing, it was a teaching technique, right? Is there absolute truth, he said. The class is silent because everybody can see that it's glaringly obvious that he's trying to reel us in and then he's gonna pounce, right, on, on somebody. Nobody said anything. I thought I knew what he was getting at, well, so I finally raised my hand and said, okay, I'll take the bait. Yes, there is absolute truth. His name is Jesus. And that was the tree he was trying to bark up. Right, this concept of truth. Is there, is there uh, somewhere in God's universe a, a truth document over here, a PDF file of objective truths? Is that how we think about the truth? No. Turns out the best truth in this world is not an object, but a person. Jesus himself said it. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus says, then you will know the truth, what he means is, then you will know me. You get to know someone by listening to them and observing how they behave. And when we take up residence in Jesus' word, we are positioning ourselves in such a way so as to listen to him and to observe the way he behaves. At least it's recorded in the Gospels, right? That's why we keep reading the Gospels, to listen to Jesus and observe how he behaved. So we get to know him, who is the truth. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now again, truth isn't this objective idea out there. Truth is a person. Thus, this whole phrase could be read as Jesus saying this, when you make your home in my word, then you'll know me and I will set you free. It's not some truth out there. This is the person of Jesus who is the truth who sets people free. So that, that's the truth. And, and, and Jesus said the truth will set you free. Well, free from what? I mean, what kind of freedom are we talking about here? Notice it was the offer of freedom that really got his hearers all hacked off. Right? Look, look how they responded to him when he said, the truth shall set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Implication, we're already free. And how dare you insinuate that we have some kind of need? Or in plain language, what are you talking about, Jesus? We don't need freedom. We're already free. Now, there's two things going on here that we have to kind of see. First, they don't want to acknowledge their need. And second, they appeal to their religious credentials as proof that they have no need. About eight years ago or so, we planted a church out in Caledonia and uh, hired a church planter. And in the, in the lead up to the planting of that church, our church planter had a uh, kind of a list of community leaders with whom he was connecting just to get to know people, introduce yourself, build relationships. And I mean, it's the good relational work of, of planting a new church. And one of the leaders was the superintendent of schools. And so they met and, and chatted for a while. And our pastor had a list of kind of general questions he asked everyone with whom he met. And one of them was, uh, what, what are the needs that you see in the community? Like what, what needs are present in the community of Caledonia? When asked that question, uh, the superintendent at that time paused and thought for a moment and said, 
needs? Our, our, our community doesn't have any needs. Really? The ravaging drug problem in your high school is not a need? It just gets back to one of Jesus' other very simple invitations. This was a message from a couple weeks back. If anyone is thirsty, let them come and drink. Remember the simple invitation and all the, all the simplicity of that? Uh, one commentator put it this way. All we need be is needy. Uh, the only prerequisite to coming to Jesus is to know that you have a need. And to simply say, God, I need help. But if you don't acknowledge need, then of course you don't have a sense that you need help and will never ask, especially God. Right? And, and the people to whom Jesus was speaking back then took it one step further. They, they didn't just fail to acknowledge their need. They said, hey, we don't have need because we're religious. And man... If you are newer to the Bible, please know that Scripture is full of warnings against this. Against this kind of self-righteous religious veneer that comes upon people when they think that they've checked all the right boxes because they were in church. Whenever it was open, they never missed a day. They gave money. They did all the right stuff, right? Look at me. I'm good. I'm good. Well, no, you're not, because it has nothing to do with that. Right? More specifically, the Bible claims that if you think religious ancestry and credentials give you security with God, you are actually living in spiritual jeopardy because there, there's a blinding effect to that where you're thinking everything is good when it's not. It's a blind spot. Right? Because, says Jesus, the problem is not lack of religious pedigree, or lack of religious accomplishment, the problem is sin. Look what he said. Jesus replied to them, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The problem is sin, and it's a universal problem for us human beings. I love the background on that word sin. In the ancient language, the actual word referred to the degree by which an archer missed the perfect bullseye. So imagine with your life, you're firing arrows all day long. And if you're at all like me, you are not hitting it dead center on the bullseye every time. And you know as well as I do, every once in a while you go like this. It doesn't even hit the target. And you meant to fire it that way. See, the problem of sin, biblically, is not that we, just, that we do stuff wrong. The problem is that we naturally are inclined to do stuff wrong, or to do wrong stuff, I guess I should say. It, it's, a, it's a problem of nature, not just of one behavior or two. And Jesus says that's, that's, that's the real problem, not that you didn't check something off on your little religious list. Look what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. He confronts this exact idea being made by the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking that day. 
Their argument was, hey, we're Abraham's descendants. We're good. Look what Paul wrote. What shall we conclude then? Do we, the Jews, have any advantage over the Gentile people, non-Jewish people, because they were Jews? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, that refers to everybody in the whole world, because you were either Jewish or not, and Gentile. So everybody, everyone, is under the power of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the, pl- the uh, glory of God. So the problem is sin, and every human being has the same problem, and therefore every human being has the same need to be freed from our slavery to sin, our, our natural inclination to be self-centered and, and, and to choose to depart from God in his ways. That's what makes Jesus' next statement so incredibly mind-blowing. Look at what he said. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. For if the son sets you free, capital S son, now he's referring to himself, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know the truth and the truth will make you free. So here it's really clear that truth refers to Jesus, the son, because if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So Jesus sets us free. I mean, these words are nothing less than an invitation to an entirely new and different life. I mean, in the Roman culture of Jesus' day, the, the contrast you know, uh, socially between a slave and a son could not have been more distinct. And this is a recurring image in the New Testament that the authors used because that idea was front and center for everybody in Jesus' day. They understood that a slave had this kind of social status, but a son had this kind of social status. So man, the New Testament rides that image. There was a radical difference in status between the two. Slaves were not permanent members of the family. A son was. Slaves received no inheritance. Sons did. Slaves didn't didn't belong to the home. Sons belonged to the home. And, And the whole reason Jesus came The work that God accomplished in Christ on the cross through the death and resurrection of Jesus was to facilitate a way by which our status could be changed. A radical change of status from slave to son. A a change in identity from slave to sin to child of God. This is the purpose behind Christmas historical claim now, remember? Look at Galatians. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. That's Christmas. When the timing was perfectly right, God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Born under the law to redeem those under the law. That's Good Friday. Born under the law to redeem those under the law. He died on the cross to purchase us back for God. That's what the word redeem actually means, to buy back the freedom of a slave. Why, you might ask, why all this? Why did he come at the perfect time? Why did he redeem those under the law? That we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, sonship's kind of a weird word. Like, we don't use that. It 
in modern language. It's referring to all the, the privileges, the status of being a son in the ancient world, the honor, uh, the, the privileges, the blessings that came with being a son in the Roman world. Now, it's not about gender here. The Bible's not trying to say this is just for guys. It's about Jesus inviting the whole world, men and women, people of every tribe, nation, and tongue, into a spiritual status with God, the same as sons enjoyed in the Roman culture of Jesus' day. With a full inheritance, with every blessing and privilege of that relationship firmly established permanently. See, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Did you catch that? A permanent place in the family. And then Jesus layers on top of it. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So for Jesus, freedom, real freedom, was having permanent standing. A permanent place to stand. And that permanent place to stand is in your identity as a child of God. And this is not an identity we create or find or work to achieve. It's an identity that, that we are simply are given when we trust Christ and, and release ourselves to Christ and do that, do that transfer of trust bit, right? This thing? If I believe this is Jesus, I could say all day that Jesus could hold me up, but it's not until I actually rest my weight. It's the trust thing, right? When we're actually trusting Christ, we're adopted into a new family, we get a new identity. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's a whole new life, right? Permanent place to stand is in your identity as a child of God. And, and, and this isn't the point of the sermon, but Christians always need to be asking, how is what we believe good news to the culture in which we live? And I submit to you that there is no better news than this piece right here. That God in Christ invites the whole world, those hostile to him and those close to him, to live in his word. And that when we do that, God sets us free and adopts us into a family, giving us a new and permanent identity. So in a, in a culture where, where the phrase, I identify as, has become so commonplace, think of what good news it is to say we don't have to, to choose our identity. In Christ, we receive our identity, our primary identity. And it's all grace. And, and it's an offer open to everyone. Right? That's not to say we don't work out our personal identity below that. But the anchor, the anchor for this, I think would, would remove so much struggle in, in the lives of people. Right? There's a reason the big catechisms lead with this idea of permanent belonging. Those of you from the Reformed tradition know the Heidelberg Catechism. At least I hope you do. We should do a catechism class. Dave Bast, we should do a whole Heidelberg Q&A thing. Uh, Heidelberg Q&A number one. 
what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. (laughs) That I don't have to figure it out on my own. That I don't have to create it on my own. That I don't have to find it on my own. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Belonging, adoption, new identity. It's amazing. Tim Keller and his wife Kathy wrote a new catechism, which I really like, called the New City Catechism. And there's a new city catechism for kids that we picked up. And we've worked through little pieces of it with Jack and Tucker very sporadically. But I love Q&A 1 in the New City Catechism for kids. Our boys know this and can give you the answer straight away. Question. What is our only hope in life and death? Answer. That we are not our own, but belong to God. In Jesus we get a new identity. It's not just an ethereal religious idea floating out there. This is the best truth about you if you are in Christ. It's a covenant identity. Because as we celebrate at the table, in, in that covenant relationship where two parties have agreed to keep up one end of the bargain, right? God keeps his end of the bargain And the New Testament, the New Covenant, is that God in Jesus snuck around to our side and fulfilled all of the requirements for our end of the bargain. So God keeps his end, and in Jesus, he keeps our end for us. So God fully keeps all stipulations of the covenant so that we can live solidly in our identity as children of God, being certain of that, being assured of that. Look what Paul writes in Romans. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word that was a a familiar term for father. It was, in English, it would be less father and more daddy or dad. Jesus is saying that when we're adopted into the family, we can cry out to God, not just as a religious idea, but as dad. That that assurance of relationship, that confidence, and you see echoes all through scripture. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Confidence in in that relationship. And it's why Jesus taught us to pray. Remember the Lord's Prayer? our Father in heaven, our Abba in heaven. Whenever you pray, start by remembering your identity. That's our permanent place to stand in the knowledge of God's love, knowing that God invites us to relate to him in in that kind of way. Just remember the overall flow as we close. It was a conditional statement, right? If you make your home in my word, then You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is Jesus. He wants to be known, and he wants to set you free. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.